Welcome to another 40 Guard Live. Today we will talk about tactics, techniques, and procedures. And who would be a better fit than my good friend Amor, straight from uh, Texas? Amor, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, and everything is uh, wonderful in Texas, as always. That's, uh, that's really good to hear. I, I know we have been analyzing uh, a lot of techniques, tactics, procedure during the last couple of months. And I want to give our audience an overview about what we discovered, what we think is, is trending these days, and what kind of points we are need to look at a little bit more in detail. And how could we do this better than leveraging, for example, the kill chain, where we go through all these pillars and have a little bit of closer look for these different stages, how threat actors these days are using different techniques to disrupt our um, environments. With, with that being said, let's focus first on the initial access, because when I look at the area which, which I'm covering and at the current techniques and trends, I see a lot of phishing attacks. I see a lot of credential stuffing. So threat actors going for these data breaches, trying to find usernames, passwords, which might be correlated to these environments, but also the very famous remote desktop protocol, or as we sometimes call it, the ransomware deployment protocol is very popular these days. How, how, how is your view on that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. So, you know, one question that I get asked a lot, especially after we investigate cyber crimes that when we do, uh, you know, things on the IR standpoint, standpoint, incident response, we always get the question like, hey, how do you think, who was patient zero, zero? Basically, how, was, how did this organization get infected first, right? What was that initial point of access? Now, most of the time, it's usually phishing, uh, phishing emails or some sort of email attack. And that's easy to say. In general, I could probably say most attacks are probably, at least from my experience, some sort of email attack, whether it's phishing, whether it's some sort of link, spear phishing, regular phishing, uh, you know, spam emails, something of that nature. But there are other types of attacks. I like that you brought up credential stuffing because, as you know, I look at like different darknet forums all the time, and it's just amazing how many usernames and passwords there are for sale. Obviously, there's a lot of other things on sale for uh, on the darknet, especially someone's identity, credit card information, other types of login, but just usernames and passwords, even from websites that are years that had data breaches years and years ago. A lot of times, I think a lot of attackers are finding that usernames and passwords, unfortunately, are not updated as often as they should be on multiple sites. People start using them across many, many sites, and that that is why they're so valuable. And when I see va valuable, remember, they're being sold in like lots of 10,000 or 100,000 for like a couple of dollars, maybe $10, $20. So that's what the price for generic usernames and passwords is for a big data breach from years ago. But that that's really how I see credential stuffing happening. Of course, phishing attacks, you click on a link, basically you get to go get redirected to a fake website. That fake website is essentially collecting your username and password and being used on other sites, or maybe that fake website is injecting some sort of malware into your system that's uh, gaining a foothold into your system and then starting to steal information. Yeah, I think very well uh, in detail explained. And I, I like the part where you were talking about the credential stuff, because once these track tags are on a system, I think there are different kinds of techniques as well, how they leverage than what's out there. So on one hand, we have these living off the land techniques where they use whatever software is already installed. But sometimes this is not enough or the environment doesn't provide the tools which they need to fulfill their missions. So when we talk about credentials and finding out what kind of users are in these environments, 
we see a lot of third-party malware being deployed on these systems like for example mimikatz is super popular so once someone has access to this environment he uploads additional malware runs it and gathers like hashes or usernames and passwords which are sometimes unencrypted on a little bit older operating systems and then adds them to their arsenal because probably down the line somewhere in his, his attacks he will be able to reuse and leverage them again yeah, Jonas, I think you brought up a good point, living off the land. And I just want to back up a little bit and kind of explain a little bit on what that means. After that initial access happens, what attackers are doing, at least what they at least what the good ones are doing, if I can uh, kind of use that term, is they're trying to not upload as much software, additional software on someone's system. And they're trying to use techniques or tools that are already on a system. Uh, you know, when we administer systems, Windows systems, uh, other operating systems, there's a lot of tools that attackers can turn around and use that to start doing reconnaissance techniques. They can start doing that to gain persistence. They can start doing that to, you know, land and expand, basically spread across the organization. And they try Try and leverage as much as they can on that. And the reason they want to do that is because and when they start installing new software, that software could potentially set off alerts, even as something as antivirus alerts, uh, you know, network uh, reconnaissance, uh, looking at NetFlow information. They could start, it could start basically setting up red flags that a security team would zero in and maybe catch them. But you also mentioned that, hey, they still may install other software. And I like that you brought up Mimi Cats and some other examples because the software that they're installing at that point is more advanced than we've normally seen in the past. And, and, and I like the example you brought up because you mentioned a couple of tools that run in memory. That means the hard disk is never actually being touched. That means a lot of times attackers can avoid things like antivirus, at least traditional antivirus uh, tools. Maybe EDR, uh, EDR tools may still catch things in memory, but um, traditional antivirus tools normally need to touch the disk. Those that malware, those malicious programs need to touch the disk. And that's what they're trying to avoid. They're trying to grab things in memory, grab cache information, grab passwords, even the hash. Even if they can't, don't know the password, they can just grab that token and replay that token. That's going to give them authentication access in some cases. Obviously, uh, a lot of mitigations, a lot of uh, other things that come in place in the operating system, as well as on the networking side that can help avoid some of those situations, but attackers, you know, they, they're probably, when they're at that point, they're doing their research and figuring out what's going to be most effective for them. Definitely. And to the points you mentioned, like staying under the radar, using tools which are already pre-installed is very uh, important for them. Uh, even though when we hear about ransomware, at the end, the threat actor is encrypting all the system and announcing to everyone who has access to the system, hey, we hacked you. But until this point, it's very important for them to stay under the radar so they don't get caught, they don't get kicked out of the network. So being able to go undetected for as long as possible until their mission is achieved, if it's not ransomware, for example, more often than not, they never want to be um, found in these environments. So when it's about espionage or um, other purposes, it's not it's not about announcing to the, to, your, to the victim that they got hacked. So staying under the radar was something before ransomware was super popular, but even now with in the days of ransomware, until the malware, is, the ransomware is executed, they don't want to be found. And they're using different techniques, as you said, for like reconnaissance, but I think as well for like lateral movement later. So let's say they have this um, initial computer under their control, but now it's time for them to move laterally through the network to get more access in these environments, because just having one computer under your control is usually not their main goal. And we as well here see very often techniques like using 
living off the land, like they use PowerShell, uh, which is already pre-installed in these environment. When, for example, they find some Linux servers, they can use tools like Nmap, which is pre-installed as well to do more discovery, to find vulnerabilities, to, to find them new places in the network and uh, moving laterally through the networks before then doing a privilege escalation techniques. Yeah, you, you know what's funny is I actually remember uh, uh, like uh, years ago I was uh, helping with a, uh, a pen test and I was moving laterally for a system completely authorized and I saw a number of systems running Kali Linux or other security tools. And as a pen tester, that was great for me because it had all the attack tools that I needed as a pen tester. Talk about living off the land. That was living off like the golden land, I would say. And and I've seen this, uh, attackers actually run across this as well. I've seen this in many uh, post-exploitation write-ups, uh, you know, uh, post-analysis on attacks that, that have happened is that people have installed too many tools. And I remember that because you said, hey, Nmap may be installed. Yes, Nmap is installed in a lot of Linux distributions by default. Nmap probably doesn't need to be installed on most of those systems. Like if you have a server, there's probably no reason you need to run Nmap or there's no reason that you can't run it in a different way through the network or through other types of elevated privileges. So remember that is like, and I, and I would say it doesn't matter on operating systems. Just remember, keep your operating systems clean and tight as possible uh, to avoid you know, possible attacks. Yeah, and, and also when we talk from an attacker point of view, once he has access to these environments and he wants to move laterally, more often than not, at one point, he needs to have more privileges because at least from, let's say, phishing attacks or sometimes remote desktop protocol attacks where they gain entry to an environment, usually they don't have admin permission. So they only can do so much with this user account. And this is usually the fourth step during the kill chain where it's about privilege escalation, which means how can they achieve more permissions with their current user? So right now they're here, but they wanna have this kind of permission. So they are using, um, from what I see sometimes, vulnerabilities which have been there for years in the past and they're using them in the operating system to gain more privileges. So then they can execute more commands more tools and have more power in these environments. I think you're a little more optimistic than I am because I think everyone running Windows usually logs in with an admin username and password or admin privileges, which is, uh, you know, it's uh, it's the norm. I understand that's how, you know, um, people have to operate in a lot of organizations or it becomes a nightmare to manage, but uh, it should be kept an eye on, I would say. that That is not how I would prefer it. If I had my, uh, if I had my way, I would make sure no one had admin privileges and that they had to escalate privileges, that they had to do something extra like you know put in another username and password to gain that ability um but unfortunately like once you have admin privileges and if that's the account when we go all the way back to initial access and credential stuffing as we were talking about if that is the way they got in through admin privileges well then you don't need any other next step you've actually accomplished steps one through four <laughs> Yeah, but, but also it's sometimes not about even leveraging vulnerabilities. So I remember when you and myself were deep in the labs and we did like these challenges on these different platforms to, to gain more experience with hacking. Very often it's about finding misconfigurations as well in these operating systems. So even if all the systems are up to date, if there are misconfigurations, like for example, you have a certain folder or file which you have a, a different kind of execution permissions. So let's say... You have uh, Cronchop, which runs every single day on a, on a Friday at uh, 7 p.m. to send out some alerts to different system. If I'm able as normal user to modify this file 
and change the instructions in there. Because it's run as administrator, I can use these kind of misconfiguration issues to, to gain more privilege as well. So it's not just the vulnerabilities, it's definitely also the how the system is maintained, how it is configured, and did these people um, do accordingly to the best practices when it comes to configuration management. Yeah, absolutely. How many times have we come across or ran, ran you know, read about, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, someone exposing like a, a lot of data sensitive information because they put something in the cloud and didn't, didn't realize they had to, you know, secure a cloud storage bucket or something like that or encrypt that. They just made it wide available to the world, right? When you have cloud systems, a lot of times you do want to make it open to the public because you want people to actually get to your services, but the storage part may be exposed. Just another example of what you're talking about is misconception configurations can happen all the time. Sometimes under the best of intentions, you can still have uh, uh, configuration issues. Definitely. And when we look at the last steps, for example, uh, data exfiltration, I want a little I want to have a little bit your view on that point, because when I look at it, I see different kind of techniques. Sometimes they're using like tools which are already pre-installed, like um, 7-zip to, to make everything more compressed and then upload it to storage accounts, like burner accounts, uh, which are just used once, like normally how we would upload software to Dropbox and then just share it to themselves and downloading it. Um, but what is your view on what's the most common way how these guys exfiltrate the data before selling them then on, on darknet markets? You know, if you asked me a few years ago, I would I would have said probably a most common way is we see attackers, they've set up uh, FTP servers pretty much all over the world. A lot of times those FTP servers are on servers that are already compromised in other organizations that they didn't know, those other organizations didn't know about. So they're taking data from one organization and storing it on, a, storing that data at a different organization that they've compromised. Uh, these days we're seeing that technique kind of evolve just because, you know, with email, with uh, things like uh, cloud storage uh, drives, uh, you know, you mentioned a couple like Dropbox, there's a, there's a ton of them out there. Uh, anyone can sign up and store things on those systems. Um, and, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of attackers are are taking advantage of those free trials a lot of times. Uh, even just basic email systems uh, like these web uh, you know web hosted email systems. A lot of storage available on that. You can just upload things to those email systems and keep it sitting there, or send it to another email system. So there's a lot of techniques uh, that are going on out there. I would say some of the more advanced techniques. I'm still seeing that FT you know, whether it's FTP or uh, SFTP or, uh, you, you know, some sort of uh, storage or transfer protocol, uh, they're, they're doing that and they're compromising other organizations. So even if that data is discovered somewhere else, there's no trace back to them. Uh, if they don't do that, like I said, we're seeing these uh, public cloud storage drives that are being used and uh, taken advantage of or they're uploading information at that point, the email address, uh, uh, you know, of course, they're trying to, in many cases, using things like 7-Zip or other compression tools to try and get that data out as quickly as possible as well. Yeah, definitely. And once the data is out there, it's usually time for them to capitalize on all the work they did and finish off their mission. For example, if it's ransomware um, and they were able to exfiltrate the data and probably delete as well some of the backups, it's time for them to decrypt the systems and then act on their objectives to make as much money as possible. But sometimes um, it's not about ransomware. It's about gathering the sensitive information and then trying to clean up the steps which you did in the past. So erase all your footprints in that network because you were just looking for these specific files. And once you have them, it's like mission achieved, mission accomplished. So let's get out of there. We have the data. Let's make sure no one can backtrace us and... Um, go to the next one.
Right. I do want to point out that compressing the files sometimes in some cases is also a technique to avoid things like uh, data loss prevention devices or other deep packet inspection devices as well. So if you are transferring possibly a, um, you know, a very sensitive or confidential document out of the network, they could be network tools that are scanning for those that, that type of information. So compressing that, it could be a way of avoiding that. Not a great way of avoiding that. There's probably better ways as well, but it's one of the techniques. And then you're right. A lot of times it's not about ransomware, but I think anytime attackers are holding data ransom, whether they don't infect the system with ransomware and just are saying like, Hey, you know what? You're not going to get your data back, or we're going to leak your data, or we're going to, you know, not have, not allow you to have access to your data, or keep your customers out unless you pay us. I actually consider that all ransomware. I know, I know that's not technically ransomware, but you are holding data ransom if you're demanding payment. I consider that ransomware. And then, like I said, there's the espionage uh, component of that, where you're actually stealing that data, sensitive data to use against an organization or use to your advantage, uh, maybe sell that information as well. So I think there's two components, a money component, uh, which ransomware, I would definitely put squirrely in that, in, in that hole, uh, squirrely in that hole. Okay. But uh, also uh, the espionage uh, component as well as like trying to get information, intellectual property and steal that or use that to your advantage. And those are the, typically the last things that we see attackers do because they've gained that data. They've done everything they want. They're in your system. They have access. They have persistence in your system. And now they can really do whatever they want and kind of hurt their victims at that point. Yeah, very well summarized. And um, um, thanks again for, for joining uh, once again for this uh, great 40 Guard Live video, Omar. Uh, it's always a pleasure to do this with you. And um, until next time, uh, any last words from your side? No, I would just tell you to come over to Texas so we can have some good barbecue. And I'm, uh, I'm waiting for you, man. Uh, hop on a plane. I, I will be there soon. Thanks so much for the invitation. All right, All right everyone. Thanks so much for joining in. And we're looking forward to see you soon again. Thank you. <laughs>